Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We have a very special guest today, author of When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Threatens Lives. Heather McDonald, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Yes, ma'am. Anytime. Uh, so this has been um, <clears throat> kind of a weird period in human history. You know, um, it has been the case for most of it that just through necessity that a meritocracy exists because we've just been trying to stay alive. Right now that we've gotten a little bit more comfortable, it seems like some of these weird ideas about how life should be fair have become people's guidestone, which is interesting to me um, because it's, it's never really been that, that way before. And you've done quite a bit of work in this area. Can you tell me a little bit about your personal background and how you got into this, this kind of research? Well, first of all, I would just say that uh, if, if life should be fair, we should have a meritocracy. Mm. Uh, we should have people rewarded based on their actual accomplishments, not on the trivialities of race or sex. I never regard it as fair when I am given some opportunity, whether it's to appear on a panel or write something or be on a show because I'm female, which I know happens all the time. I'm, I'm under no illusions about that. And it makes me sick. Uh, my sex is of no relevance to anything I might say. And being chosen on the basis of sex, cast doubt on any legitimate uh, qualifications or accomplishments I might, I might ho hope to have. And that's the same for race. Race is not an accomplishment. Uh, being gay is not an accomplishment. Being trans is not an accomplishment. And none of those uh, identity traits, which are trivial and, and of no interest, should ever play any role in any employment decision, bah, promotion decision, awarding of a grant, awarding of a prize, nothing. Uh, my background is somebody, I studied literature, I studied literary theory, I came to realize that that was a horrible waste of my time since because literary theory had gone so far into a really bizarre realm of thought. Studying literature, let me just make sure nobody's mistaking me. Studying literature is actually the greatest thing one can do. If you have the opportunity to do that in college or thereafter, I would highly recommend doing so because it will take you out of your petty, narrow, pathetically mediocre self into a much greater world. Um, but so I, I pursued literary studies for a while and then eventually uh, out of not interested in becoming a lawyer, but I was interested in legal theory. I went to mm. law school. And um, and as I kept looking and observing what was going on in academia, because my aspiration still was always to be a professor of literature. This, there's no greater privilege, but academia got crazier and crazier with the rise of multiculturalism, of women's studies, uh, identity politics. And I realized I simply could not go back in. I couldn't go home. So at some point I started writing about cultural matters. And I also started doing journalism for the first time in my life in the 1990s when Mayor Rudolph Giuliani took over the city in 1994 and embarked on a extraordinarily courageous and transformative crusade to bring the city back to law and order, to try to dislodge the welfare industrial complex, which he did fairly successfully. Uh, and to 
make the city livable again and live up to urban ideals. And I was part of a think tank called the Manhattan Institute that was seen as sort of the ideas laboratory for Giuliani. And it was a very exciting time to be writing. It was my start in journalism and I would go to welfare uh, offices and homeless shelters and high crime neighborhoods and talk with people on the streets or welfare clients or people in jails and prisons. And I, I got a firsthand education in conservative principles that I had not gotten uh, in my years of elite education. Sure. Yeah. I, I think it's all, all, all this weird turn um, where we've kind of um, th there's been a small but vocal minority attacking the epistemology of the West. Uh, and it seems to be rooted in this is ought fallacy. Like, well, I think things should be my idea fair, so they should be that way. But it's like it's not really reality. Like I'm, I'm five foot two. People probably aren't going to dunk a basketball anytime soon. And uh, pretending like it's unfair or saying that it's unfair doesn't really change reality that much. It's very bizarre that we've taken this particular road. And I wonder from uh, from your perspective, why do you think that is? I mean, like my, my premise is always if somebody's trying to if somebody's trying to divide you or attack a particular epistemology, it's almost like questioning the character of a witness in a criminal trial. You know what I mean? You're not really talking about the facts so much. You're just trying to weaken the position on the periphery so you can. I don't know, maybe dislodge some people from that belief set, but I, I can't figure this one out. It seems very bizarre to me because it's it always turns into uh, what my friend Chris Williamson calls a 360 degree firing squad, right? Because if you set these weird purity tests that have no basis in reality, everybody ends up being everybody else's enemy at some point. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, and that's always a delicious moment when the yeah. left turns on itself <laughs> and you have the editor of the New York Times opinion page getting fired because he published an op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton saying that Trump should consider using federal troops to put down the George Floyd race riots. And all the black employees at the New York Times said that by virtue of just having this op-ed in the pages of the New York Times, their lives were at risk. And I'm sure that the editor who was sacked uh, in order to placate the black employees was fairly liberal. I mean, he probably was not as left wing as the current young round of journalists, but it's it's very lovely to watch watch this happening. Um, but I, I would say, Dan, it's uh, my, the title of my book is When Race Trumps Merit. As I see it, uh, the widespread attack on meritocratic standards today is overwhelmingly driven by the race problem in America. Uh, the country is understandably Many people still feel guilty about our appalling treatment of blacks through most of our, our history, treatment that was wildly hypocritical given our founding ideals. It was gratuitously nasty, heartbreakingly cruel, uh, but we are not that country today. We have gotten over that, and now it's the opposite. Now there's not a single institution that is not bending over backwards to hire and promote as many blacks as possible. Our reality today is no longer white privilege, it's black privilege. Our reality is not white supremacy and apartheid, uh, just the opposite. But despite that, the academic, the, the, the racial disparities have not closed. We do not see racial proportionality in our meritocratic institutions, whether it's in a big tech firm, in the computer science or engineering department, or at a medical research laboratory, medical school, student body or faculty, 
or in a law firm partnership. Uh, and America is very uncomfortable with that fact. It doesn't want to discuss the inner city dysfunctional culture that is giving rise to those disparities, whether it's with regards to academic achievement or criminal offending. And so we've gone into this hysteria, uh, blaming every mainstream institution for phony racism. Mm. Yeah, I feel like um, it's one of a set <clears throat> of, I guess, ideologies that have built up activist industries around them. Third wave feminism is an example of that. Um, late term abortions and the continued, like it's just pushing the bill a little farther and the continued discussion of race and, and what I think is almost an entirely post-racial society. Nobody that I know, and I, I talk to uh, uh, hundreds of people from very different backgrounds all the time. Nobody cares about any of this shit anymore. It's I, My opinion is it, it is simply to, one, continue the division from the political class because they benefited from that. There's an old saying that solved problems don't get out the vote, which is a, is a very smart thing to say, I think. But <clears throat> the other part of it is it, I think it's, it is just to, I guess, continue to prop up the activist industry so these people can continue to generate attention and money. I think that's really all it is. I mean, we saw it with BLM. They, none of the money went to any real cause. People were just pilfering, right? And we see this in everything, whether it's Susan B. Komen, they've had their issues. Uh, Planned Parenthood has had their issues and stuff like this. Um, and I don't really care about the abortion issue. But what I do care about is affecting people's day-to-day -day lives and, and, and pitting people against each other in a, in a manner that hurts our country ultimately, just so you can profit off of it. I mean, I know a lot of people that work in these industries in the political class, especially. And if there's no longer teachers unions, they don't have a job anymore. If there's no longer Planned Parenthood, they don't have a job anymore. If there's no longer BLM, they don't have a job anymore. So it's not about whether the issue is correct or not. It's just about sustaining their own personal life. And I think that's kind of fucked up, to be honest. Well, you're making a structural argument that that it's all about self-interest or perpetuating uh, your group or your, uh, you know, raison d'etre, mm. that structural argument could be directed at the right as well. Oh, sure. You could yeah. say the NRA mm -hmm. is just, you know, wanting to keep issues going and any or or the pro-life group just wants to keep issues going. Uh, so I think that's overbroad as an explanation uh, because what group does, in a sense, what group doesn't want to keep itself going? Uh, you know, we, uh, so I think that it is necessary to look at the ideology and yes, it is definitely a race hustle. And I am sick of people saying lower, I'm sick of, of black leaders saying lower standards for us rather than we'll meet those standards or the reason we're not meeting these standards is racism, therefore lower the standards. Uh, people have to stop being cowed by that. But I don't think that this is simply self-interest, but that comes into play for every human mm -hmm. activity. I think it's also ideological and it, it is based on a particular outlook about the character of Western civilization and the character of American civilization. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh... It is, a, it is a broader point. You're right. It definitely happens on uh, either side of any issue. Um, I think that's per – personally, I would not conduct myself in that way because I don't, I don't 
think that's appropriate, but it is very ubiquitous. And uh, to to your other point, it's we've got about twenty five years or so of data that pretty clearly state that the more egalitarian a society becomes, the more likely, for example, women are to choose more feminine roles for employment or whatever, right in the home or whatever it is, and men are more likely to choose their roles. I but there seems to be this. And it happens in race, too. There seems to be this very broad disconnect between reality and the opinions or arguments made from either side. For example, on the issue of police killing unarmed black men, if you ask somebody who is a registered Democrat and ask them how many unarmed black people were killed by police a year, they'll say somewhere between 100 and 200. If you ask somebody who is a solid Democrat, right, who, is, who only votes Democrat, they'll say somewhere around 1,000. And if you ask a progressive, they'll say upwards of 10,000. The, the real number is seven to nine, right? So these people are 10x to 1,000x multipliers away, orders of magnitude away from reality. And it happens, again, the more egalitarian a society becomes, the more likely people are to choose things that represent their biological programming. So why is it, why is it this, why is this the battlefield? Why is the battlefield something that is so easily disproven? I don't understand, like, it, it almost reminds me of 1984, where it's, in the end, uh, the party would, would say that two plus two equals five, and you would have to believe them because the logic of their position demands it, right? And the logic of their position obviously is that there is no truth. We tell you what's true. It, it almost seems like it's just social programming at this point because they are indefensible positions. Well, they think they've got the truth. Again, we should we should step out of our bubble as hard as it is to believe. I don't think anybody is deliberately saying, I, I'm going to put out a deception there. I, I think that the ideology clouds their vision and they sincerely believe these things. Um, as far as the issue of policing and race, uh it's both simple and complicated it is it is truly stunning uh to hear these protestations of say their names you know black lives matter they're they're killing us uh driving now we have knocking on the door world black from the ralph yarl case all of this is completely contrary to the facts as you say the police are not the ones that are responsible for the high, high death, death by homicide rate for blacks. Blacks between the ages of 10 and 24 die of gun shootings at, at 25 times the rate of whites between the ages of 10 and 24. You'd think that would be a civil rights problem that the activists should care about, uh, but they don't because the people that are killing those blacks at 25 times the rate are blacks themselves, not the police and not other whites. And we are just terrified, terrified of talking about inner city pathologies above all black on black violence. And so it turns out that the black activists have decided they'd rather throw in their lot with black criminals than black victims. And the reason that we're dismantling law enforcement across the board in this country uh, is that it all has a disparate impact on blacks. That's why prosecutors aren't prosecuting the law. It's why 
many police chiefs have told their officers to not make arrests for turnstile jumping or trespass because if they do so in a colorblind constitutional neutral fa fashion, they will have a disparate impact on black criminals, not because the law is racist, but because blacks commit crime at such a higher rate. And the activists have decided they'd rather protect those blacks than protect their victims who are also disproportionately black. So it's, it's bizarre, but it is also very simple, again, because we all have a guilty conscience and we feel like it is racist to talk about those problems in the inner city. I've, you know, I've been talking recently, some conservatives say to them, have said, well, a conservative donor will come up to him, this is a big podcaster, and said, well, I don't like it when you talk about race, that's racist. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's the facts. The facts are not racist. Uh, and the result of turning our eyes away from these problems is that they'll never get solved. Isn't, uh, I mean, to me, it seems racist to ignore a problem because you don't want to sound racist. I mean, people suffer because of that. You know, I mean, there, there, is, a, there is a direct and measurable effect of ignore, ignoring this, these, what's very clear data. And I, I think it's, it, it seems very bizarre to me that people can't separate the statistics from somehow monolithing the entire black community. I, I, like that it's that doesn't make any sense. Like men are men are stronger. That doesn't mean they're they're not strong women, right? Exactly. It's that seems very bizarre to me. You know, Bill Maher actually pointed this out on a show last week that uh, the the vast majority of homicides in this country are young black men killing other young black men. Like 70%. It's a lot. I mean it's not even it's not like it's 40% or 60 even, it's 70%. And you make a really good point. I mean, <clears throat> the vast majority of violent crime is committed by in, uh, uh, intra-race, I guess, in between two races. So I think it's like 83% of uh, Latinos, uh, 82 or 83% of whites, 85 or 86% of black people that get murdered are murdered by another Latino, white or black person, right? That's just how it works because we're surrounded by people who look like us for the most part. In, in life um how i don't understand i mean i guess it's just race hustling nonsense but how do you how do we break through this like you said to get out of your bubble i i talk to a lot of people that don't think like me on a pretty regular basis and it is very difficult to have a conversation with somebody that's operating from a completely different set of information and facts that you are and you know you can point them to well here are the fbi statistics or here's some good research on this and you know, they will, you know, kind of summarily dismiss it because it doesn't fit their narrative. I don't know how you have a conversation with somebody like that. It's a really good question. I don't either. Uh, and I, I'm just going to point out that, yes, most violence is intra-racial mm. between members of the same race. However, when you're talking about interracial violence among different races, and you're talking about black on white and white on black interracial violence. Blacks commit 87% of all interracial violence between blacks and whites on the one hand and whites and blacks on the other. So this racial bathos that you know says that uh, black parents, that Biden, President Joe Biden says all the time that black parents are right to fear that their children 
will be killed by a cop or by a white person every time they go outside. That's just, it's just a lie. I mean, it's maybe to say it's a lie means it's deliberate. It's a complete falsehood. Mm. It's a complete untruth. Uh, you know, in Kansas City, where we had this Ralph Yarl shooting, blacks commit homicide at nine times the rate of whites, but they die of homicide at seven times the rate of whites because they're committing a lot of other people outside of their own race, unlike whites. So, uh, but how you break through that, I don't know. I've I've experienced this myself. I've talked about policing and and crime and race for one of my previous books, The War on Cops at the Yale Law School. And the students there just came up with the most fantastical explanations for uh, why one shouldn't trust the homicide statistics. You know, homicide statistics are the gold standard of all crime data. The bodies don't lie. Mm. Nobody, you don't really hide the bodies. And true, most a lot of shootings don't get solved because of the anti-snitching ethic, but uh, they pretty much all get reported. And these Yale Law students were just, had explanations that somehow like it was as if white people are also getting killed but they're not getting reported and things it just didn't make sense but the utter resistance to the actual facts was extremely high and the really thing to be worried about is these are law students mm. who are supposed to be moved by facts and um you know now they don't have a client. If you're if you're actually a lawyer representing somebody, you you sort of have a right to pick and choose your facts. You can't tell lies, but you don't have to invoke facts that are against your case. But as a law student, you really should be open to empirical evidence, and these students just weren't. This episode of Citizens is also brought to you by Ghostbed dot com forward slash drinky bros right now ghostbed is offering 40 percent off ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base for everything else 30 percent off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros if you get the uh 40 off deal if you use the 40 off bundle deal you're going to get uh, a mattress and all your stuff your base your sheets your pillows all this stuff for about 30 to 35 bucks a month They've got a zero down, zero percent financing plan for up to 60 months, six zero months. That's five years, uh, about the lifespan of the average bed. So it works out great for you. works out great for uh, the company. So go check it out. Go to ghostbed.com for slash drinker bros. Whether you're in the market for a bed, uh, an adjustable base, whether you just need sheets or pillows or any of that stuff, they got the best. The mattress protector, the weighted blanket. They have everything you need there. 30% off everything. Use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. Or if you need that adjustable base as well and the mattress, get the bundle and everything else you add onto that deal is 40% off. You would think so. And uh, to the again, to the point about having the conversations, um, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that the broader black community believes this shit, frankly. Um, so there was a poll done, I think it was early last year or late 21 in Oakland, um, where they asked residents, about a thousand residents, whether they wanted more, less, or the same amount of police in their neighborhoods. And 83% said more or the same. Now, that's not what you would expect. I lived in Oakland for a long time. Well, I lived in Piedmont, but I worked in Oakland uh, and San Francisco. And that's not the answer that I would have, based on what you hear in the, in the press every day, what you see in conversations that are public, that is not the answer that I would have expected. But the reality is that 
you know, Maslow was right about a lot of things. Like people want to be safe and secure in their neighborhoods. They don't want to feel like they're um, under constant threat and they don't really care who the threat is. It doesn't make it any better or, 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 or I, I don't know how you would frame that, but it doesn't make it better if you get robbed by somebody of your own race versus somebody of an opposite race. You know what I mean? You still got robbed. You still got assaulted. The, the crime is still there. People don't like that. And I don't, I don't see why that's such a hard thing to understand. Well, that's kind of a conservative safe harbor that all of the anti-police rhetoric and, and ideology is coming out of protected white elites. But um, I'm going to throw some cold water on that. And I know those polls, too. I mean, we've had Quinnipiac polls in New mm. York City asking black voters and, and vo white voters, voters, do you want the police to be enforcing the so-called broken windows offenses, mm. the, the public order offenses, quality of life offenses? And black voters wanted that in their neighborhood to a higher degree than white voters. On the other hand, mm. you just had Brandon Johnson elected in Chicago over the uh, runner-up Paul Vallis, Vallis mm. and Johnson is a longtime police basher. He tried to soften his rhetoric in the in the uh, runoff election somewhat, but we've seen him revert to type after the latest of the flash mobs that took over the Magnificent Mile. This is hardly the first. Last year, there was somebody who was actually shot to death in Millennium Park at the so-called bean sculpture there. Mm. Um, and, and there's Johnson excusing this behavior and saying, oh, it's because these students don't have or these youth rampaging feral youth don't have opportunities. Oh, give me a break. They all have smartphones. That's how they organize their flash mobs. These are not deprived youth. Uh, and, and he said, we, we, uh, they don't have safe places to gather in their neighborhoods. Well, Magnificent Mile was perfectly safe until they came and started shooting each other. Um, so the, the areas of Chicago that voted the most for Brandon Johnson who had called earlier for defunding the police were black neighborhoods. So I think there's a divided consciousness there. There's on the one hand, if you ask, yes, we'd like more police, but they will still often vote for mm. the ideology of victimhood and 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 the sense of or it's a sheer racial uh, solidarity. And a lot of groups have done that throughout American history. Uh, so that's a hard thing to overcome as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's we have these conversations and polls and things like that that show that people feel a certain way, um, but quite often they vote completely against their own self-interest, which is, you know, I guess that's what happens when you have a popularity contest to decide who leads you. You know what I mean? That's one of the inherent dangers of that. Um, in reinforcing victimhood as this new dummy in uh, Chicago did, it always ends with the same result, right? I mean, you just, you empower that, that feeling, whether it's, it stems from uh, nihilism and not feeling invested in the community or whether it stems um, from feeling like you're being oppressed. And, you know, once, once you feel like, once you get that injection of self-righteousness from a third party, third party validation, then, you know, I think, History shows that not only does the behavior continue, but it escalates, right? They become more and more emboldened and start doing crazier things, which I'm not sure how much worse Chicago can get, frankly. Oh, it can get a lot worse. It can get to St. Louis level or Detroit level or Baltimore level or Louisville level or, or Memphis or Baton Rouge. I mean, I'm always kind of amazed at 
the fact that the press pays so much attention to Chicago, but it is not even close to the highest per capita mm. homicide rate in the country. Uh, it has, as a numerical basis, it has the highest number of homicides, but that's just because it's a large city. But, and I, I think it gets the attention because it does have still a very, very viable and gorgeous downtown. Mm -hmm. But uh, frankly, you know, Trump said would focus on Chicago too. It's just, it's not the case. Less sexy cities are far, far worse. And do you think um, you, you, you're deeper in this academically than anybody I talk to? Do you think that the rise in crime and the results, which is mass migration of people from major cities um, and corporations like Walmart leaving major cities and CBS shutting down stores and Walgreens shutting down stores, do you think this is having any impact on those communities who do vote against their own self-interest? Or do you think it's just because the, the, if you read CNN or the New York Times, the uh, stories about Walmart shutting down stores in Chicago has been like, well, now black people don't have anywhere to shop. That That's the narrative. It's not that they're shutting down because they're losing, on average, $450,000 extra per year in loss, right, per store. That's not the narrative. The narrative is, well, Walmart's abandoning inner cities. Okay, maybe, right? But what? why? What was the, the cause of that? And I don't see – I don't know what news people really read if any, anymore. I think maybe people just kind of casually get information these days. I'm not sure. Uh, just because corporate media is so distrusting or just uh, un unworthy of our trust at this point. I'm not sure where people get their news anymore. I mean, I, I kind of look at everything and try to make an educated guess on what's reality and what's not. But I'm not sure that I, I do that for a living. I'm not sure people who just work nine to five have the ability to even stomach any of that i know it's it's odd uh one doesn't know when, when you're talking to any given audience what their knowledge level is you know i i'm very conscious that i'm in this conservative bubble talking to people that are pretty involved in issues and and you don't know how far back how many steps back you need to take in order to educate people i'm always amazed that the degree of ignorance at the extent of um, how racial ideology has taken over things. I see like, I see it every day. How can you not see it? Um, as far as the store closing, yeah, it's, it is astounding. And the reason that those stores are closing is because they would rather close and deprive their customers of their prescription drugs, their elderly residents of their access to their prescription drugs, than make arrests for shoplifting and be accused of being racist because the majority of people that they will be arresting are black. Again, that's just the reality. Uh, it's not because the stores are racist or the laws are racist. It's because those kids in these inner city neighborhoods are not being socialized. They are not being given bourgeois norms of respect for the law. They're being sucked into a gang culture. But this, the Walmarts and the Starbucks and the Walgreens and other stores would rather just go out of business in that particular area than face the wrath of the New York Times, which went after Macy's about 10 or 15 years ago, because it too, uh, its security guards who were probably themselves overwhelmingly black were arresting black shoplifters at a higher rate. And it was impossible to say, you could not say, but maybe that's who's doing the shoplifting.
Yeah, right. And it's uh, that's how deep this weird relationship with race uh, uh, that white America has the inability to just to tell the truth about things. I mean, if you if if so, so a, a retail store will deal with somewhere between half a percent and one and a half percent breakage through uh, uh, crime like theft and, and other stuff like that per year. So if they got to, I'm just being generous here, but let's say they got to 2% in Chicago, which is a low number, I think that means that that average store, those four stores they were running were, were generating about $25 million in revenue each. So they shut down a hundred million dollars in annual revenue just so they didn't have to admit that black right. people were stealing shit from their stores. Right. You know what I mean? That's, that is fucking crazy. That's crazy. We're running away from the problem. It is it is really amazing. And the question is how much how much worse is it going to get? And I write about medicine and you know the sciences in the book. And it's just uh it is crazy. And people have to stop being cowed by the being called racist. Our standards are not racist, our civilization is no longer racist. It never really was. It was about many things other than race. It was not all centered around race. The 1619 Project is wrong on that. It's right on a very few things, but on on the idea that everything in America revolved around race, that just there's a lot that did not. Now there's a lot when we talk about how wonderful we were with, you know, entrepreneurialism and individual opportunity. I'm these days feeling we sort of do need to footnote and say, yeah, but see blacks, you know, yeah. didn't apply across the board. And and the 1619 project is right for bringing that out. But the conquest, the, the, the amazing entrepreneurialism, the amazing run of discoveries of patents that were developed starting in the 19th century through the 20th, you know, cars, new farm implements, new ways of canning, new transportation, all of that, just this extraordinary outpouring of ingenuity and and amateur tinkering, uh, that didn't have anything to do with race. Mm. And and the westward expansion didn't have anything to do with race. Obviously, we ran into Indian problems uh, and in both directions. Uh, but But still, at this point, we have to stop being afraid of the of being called a racist. I mean, think about for, forget about the um, epistemological concerns about operating from the same reality, about how it even affects the people um, that aren't committing crimes that live in that area, and think about the culture that it is perpetuating, where people feel like a life of chaos and crime is a legit future for themselves. Right. And, and yeah. I mean, consider the nihilism that that's rooted in where I, I, I just have to accept the consequences that I'm going to be in debt or in jail by 25 years old. So I'm going to go yeah. quote unquote, get mine and do whatever I want. How do people feel on the left? Like they're doing anybody any favors by allowing that. If you, if your child was being a dick, right. If your three-year-old was being a dick and biting other kids, or, or breaking things, you would not allow that. Nobody would. Yeah. You know, you raise the question, Dan, like, how do they believe this? They say the same about us. You know, let's just admit it. They will say, how can they not see that Trump is a fascist or a totalitarian? <laughs> how, 
you know, how can they not see that uh, COVID was the worst ca catastrophe to happen to this country ever? And we needed to completely shut down business and take have government run everything. You know, they'll say that about us. But I do. Uh, uh, so I'm always trying to say, look, mm -hmm. at, you know, these things are balancing out. But I I don't begin to understand it. They'd rather put up with dead bodies than say we've got to have law abiding constitutional policing. And and we have the capacity to change our culture now. You know, let's not pretend that white culture is anything to crow about these days. Mm. Uh, it's it's breaking down along similar lines with the great rise in out of wedlock mm. child rearing. The, the American drug habit is just sickening. There's something just hollow at the core of the American psyche today that we have so many people trying to obliterate their consciousness it's beyond belief and there's it's not comparable in europe certainly our crime rates are not comparable uh and that's to a large extent because of our demographic profile but the drug use is across the board mm. and and the disassociation from work among a lot of working class or should be working class uh white males is very depressing so you know i think to a certain extent no group wants to hear itself uh, called out in public mm. and criticized in public. So I'm 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 very aware that it is, as I say, a violation of racial etiquette for me to talk about inner city black problems. But on the other hand, I also feel that the hour is late, and as as valid as racial etiquette it would be as a general principle what i see happening now on a daily basis to the institutions that i cherish and love is too catastrophic to obey those rules of silence any longer because if they're going to accuse every institution of being racist and they're tearing it all down on the grounds of racism i'm sorry i'm going to have to fight back with some uncomfortable racial facts that nobody wants to look at. For instance, 66% uh, of black 12th graders do not even possess partial mastery of the most basic 12th grade math skills, such as arithmetic or being able to recognize a linear function on a graph. 66% of black 12th graders are not even partially uh, competent in those. The number of black 12th graders who are competent in basic 12th grade math skills is 7%. And the number who are advanced in math is so small as to statistically not even show up. When you have that degree of academic skills gap, it is preposterous to say that racism is the only allowable explanation for the lack of 13% black engineers at Google or the lack of 13% uh, cancer researchers or physicists that are getting funded by the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy or the National Science Foundation. That, that and was, Dan, I have to give you a head up. I have only five more minutes I can give. Sure, no worries. Um, that is deeply embarrassing. For this, the richest country in the history of human beings, it is deeply embarrassing that 
13, a, a group that represents 13 to 16 percent of our country has, has been at left behind is not the phrase I would use because, you know, that implies that that it's all on one group of people uh, or all on, on somebody. But um, pretending like the problem doesn't exist because you're uncomfortable having that conversation is I mean, it, imagine yourself in a relationship and there's some you know, there, there's some gears to be ground, I guess, inside of your relationship and you decide not to like, you know what, it's better off if we just don't talk about it. How often in human history has that worked out for anybody? You know what I mean? That's a, that's a really, a really stupid way to go through your life. Um, what do you think, uh, uh, what do you think is, are, are some solutions for this kind of stuff? Right. I mean, I, I'm sure you talk about it in the book. So if there, if there's stuff in the book where you, you give people advice on how to go have conversations or whatever, uh, could you give me some insight on that? Well, I think the most, uh, the strongest solution, the one that would have the most effect, but the one that's hardest to attain is honesty and courage. As I say, people have to stop being terrified by being called racist. They have to stop capitulating to the race hustle. It's a hustle at this point. Uh, and they have to stop lowering standards in order to avoid disparate impact and achieve uh, racially proportionate outcomes. That has to end. The difficulty is how do you give people that courage? Uh, now, a, a Republican administration could get rid of every disparate impact standard in the Code of Federal Reg Regulations, would have to hold notice comment hearings, uh, it could tell the federal science agencies and every other bureaucracy, a White House executive branch bureaucracy, get rid of disparate impact rules, do not uh, reward institutions or hand out money on the basis of race uh, or sex or, or gender identity, sexual orientation. None of these things are relevant. The statutes that, that embrace disparate impact rules would have to be changed by Congress. But there, so there is things, and, and Governor DeSantis is showing that you can stand up to uh, even academia and, and, you know, you're going to be called a racist. You can stand up to the uh, let's destroy childhood innocence lobby and say, no, I'm sorry, these books should not be in school libraries because they destroy childhood innocence. And that's what we are bound to protect. Hmm. Um, so there's things that politicians can do, but I think that people within our fundamental institutions, whether it's medical schools, science labs, uh, classical music orchestras, opera companies, art museums, have to return to a sense of excellence and merit and stop lodging totally phony charges of racism against their own institutions. Well, three uh, academics just had a paper pulled this week, actually, for that very thing. Um, I don't know if you followed that. Uh, I can't. No. I can't remember the institution. I'd have to look it up. Um, but uh, three, it was uh, University of Minnesota, I believe. Three, three academics there wrote a paper accusing the University of Systemic Racism, and then somebody rebutted with the actual data, and, and they had their paper pulled, which is interesting. You don't see that happen very often. I'm glad to see it happen, even if it's one, uh, a one-off. Um, Thank you very much for coming today. I know you got to go. Can you tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your book? You can Google me, Heather MacDonald, uh, M-A-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. 
and I have a Twitter account, which I don't even know what the handle is because I don't really run it. But if you do Heather McDonald Twitter, it'll get you the account that gives me a lot of my recent writings. And then the book is When Race Trumps Merit and that you can buy wherever you usually buy books. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming today. I appreciate the insight and the conversation and uh, what you're doing out there. Thank you, Dan. Yes, ma'am. And this is, uh, thank you all for, for listening. This has been Citizen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.